Well, good morning to each and every one of you once again. I'm going to grab my coffee and bring it down here. Are we all, are we all doing okay this morning? Has anyone reached the realization, as I have over the past week or so, that we have like one month of summer left and then it's going to be cold for about nine months? Or are we just in denial about that fact? It's probably better to remain in denial about that fact. Well, we have, uh, for those of you who may be joining us um, and are new, for those of you who have forgotten since last week, uh, wherever you are in that, we have been going through the book of Deuteronomy uh, throughout this summer um, here at the church. That's been our sermon series, through the book of Deuteronomy. And if I can just take a few minutes to go back and sort of tell the story of where we are and what we've been talking about, it would be, I think it'd be helpful to review that. So the book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, the fifth book in the Old Testament. It's the final book of a section of the Bible that we call the Torah. Sometimes we call that the law, but a better word for that is probably instruction. So the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law, the instruction, whatever words you want to use for that, Deuteronomy is the book that sort of wraps that section of the story up. The section begins with, at the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, where God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates humanity to rule over the earth. We're supposed to do the work of God in forming the earth and filling the earth. We talked a little bit about that last week. But God created a place on the earth called the Garden of Eden that mankind was supposed to come and meet with him. It was this place of fellowship between God and man, sort of this place between heaven and earth. And Adam and Eve, our, our forefathers, our foreparents, walked with God there. But God gave Adam and Eve a command. He gave them one command, and it may be one that you're familiar with. He said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. It wasn't an apple tree, as some people kind of commonly pretend that it is. It was a knowledge of good and evil tree. We don't have them nowadays, but that's the kind of tree that it was. That said, don't eat of that tree. And when God commanded them that, he set in front of them a choice. He said, on the day that you eat of it, you will die. So God sets in front of them this choice between life and death. This choice between blessing and cursing. Implicit in that choice, sort of built into it, is do you want to have a relationship with me? Do you want to live and be blessed and follow my commands, or do you not want that? And of course, if we know the story, and I imagine most, if not all of us do, Adam and Eve disobey God, they eat of the knowledge of good and evil tree, and so God kicks them out of the garden. And there's a phrase in Genesis 3, when God kicks them out of the garden, that I think is important, and it sheds a lot of light on Deuteronomy. God curses the ground. He curses the ground. He says, Adam and Eve, you're not going to live in this place of blessing anymore. You're not going to be able to come and meet with me sort of at this place between heaven and earth. You're going to be kicked out, and the ground is going to be cursed. And the next few chapters in the book of Genesis kind of go on, and they tell more and more of that story about how humanity keeps getting farther and farther from God. They don't listen to God's voice. They reject him, and so they keep moving farther and farther away, bringing more and more curses on the land. But in Genesis 12, that story changes. Because God comes to Abraham, and he makes three promises to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless 
you and your descendants. And if you've been paying attention to the story so far, that, name, that word should kind of flash a light in your head. Because what's the opposite of curse? Bless. So God has cursed the ground, but he's going to undo that curse through what he's doing to Abraham. He's going to bless Abraham and his descendants. He's going to make a great nation from Abraham. And he's going to bring the descendants of Abraham to live in the land. No longer is the land going to be cursed, but God's going to bring them back to live in it in a place of blessing. Skipping forward, if we can, a couple hundred years, actually, Abraham's descendants find themselves in the land of Egypt, which is sort of another place that symbolizes death and cursing, but that's a different story for a different day. But they are in slavery in the land of Egypt. And they, they sort of know the stories about how God came to Abraham, but they really don't have a personal knowledge of their God. They're just, you know, God's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Until one day God shows up. God sends a guy named Moses. And if you've watched the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt or have gone to Sunday school, you're familiar with this story. Moses shows up and says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh doesn't. So God does all sorts of signs and wonders. The Bible talks about how God redeemed Israel from Egypt. He spared no expense. Sometimes the Bible talks about how God you know, uses his strong right arm to bring Israel out. Right? He flexes his muscles in order to bring Israel out of Egypt. He redeems them from slavery. He brings them through the Red Sea. He brings them through this place of death. They're fleeing death. He brings them through death to escape from death. And he brings them out to Mount Sinai, which is sort of like a mini Eden. It's a place between heaven and earth where God comes down to meet with his people. And there at Mount Sinai, God says, I am the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Here's how you should respond to me. I have loved you, so you should love me back. And the Bible's very clear about why God brought Israel out of Egypt. It was not because Israel was mightier than any of the other nations. It was not because Israel had a lot to offer God militarily. It was simply because God loved Israel. God just picked them. He said, I'm going to choose to love you above all of these other nations of the world. So God brings them out. And he says, because I have loved you, I want you to love me back. Now, when God says for his people to love him, that's not sort of, you know, some, um, you know, some heart-palpitating uh, infatuation that we all experienced when we were in junior high. It, it's, it's talking more about loyalty, the kind of loyalty that a married couple feels to each other after they've been married for 63 years. This routine, loyalty, and love. And what it looks like for us to love God and be loyal to him is to keep his commandments. But we don't just keep these commandments just to keep the commandments, right? It's not like God gives us a series of hoops to jump through and, oh, now you can have eternal life by jumping through these hoops. No, but God has promised blessing to Abraham and his descendants, right? God has promised to undo what Adam and Eve did. And so the law that God gives, as revealed in the book of Deuteronomy and other places, is the way of blessing itself. If you want to live a blessed life, then you follow God's commandments. You will love God. You will love your neighbor as yourself. You'll remember the Sabbath day. 
you'll do all of these things that have been revealed. Going back to the story of, of the nation of Israel, they were at Mount Sinai. And they spent about a year there. They built a tabernacle there. And they went from there to finally invade the promised land, right? They were headed from Egypt to Canaan. God promised it to Abraham, and it wasn't time for them to get the promised land then. So this is the time for them to go and get the promised land. But they pulled back. Even though a couple years ago they had seen God redeem them from Egypt. They had seen God flex his arm and do many signs and wonders in order to bring them out of Egypt. Even though they had seen that, they didn't trust God to go in and fight the battles for them that they needed in order to take the land. So the generation that left the nation of Egypt wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And a new generation came up, a generation that were kind of waist high. They were little kids when they came out of Egypt, a generation that hadn't been born yet. A new generation grew up who maybe didn't know this story as much as their parents did. And so the book of Deuteronomy means second law. A duet is when two people sing together, right? That's what Deuteronomy means, duet, and then nami, which means law. But you probably didn't know that one because there's not a fun name for a, a musical group with nami in it. So that's what Deuteronomy means. It means second law. It's a retelling of the law. This new generation that didn't know the story as much as their fathers and their grandfathers, they sat down as they were about to enter the land. And Moses recounted to them, this is who God is. This is what God has done for you. And because he has redeemed us, we are to love him back. The book of Deuteronomy, some people would sum up the entire book in the Ten Commandments. Right? John Kelvin, uh, for those of you who know who he is, if you don't know who he is, then you don't have to learn that today. But John Kelvin, in his commentaries on you know, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he grouped pretty much the entire thing. There was a history section, sort of a narrative section, but he grouped all of the commands and the laws under the Ten Commandments. He organized them all into Ten Commandments. And we're not going to talk through all of the Ten Commandments through this sermon series, but I just want to hit a few of them. We kind of covered the first three when we talked about the command to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Last week, we talked about remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This week, we talk about the sin that everyone struggles with, murder. That was, that was a joke. You guys were supposed to laugh on that. All right. How many people in this room, because confession is a good thing for the soul, and we as Christians are supposed to live lives of repentance and confession, how many people have ever killed someone? How many people have ever tried to? Anyone? No one. Well, then why am I preaching this message this morning? I should have picked something else. Janet, I asked Janet earlier, I was like, has anyone ever actually tried to kill somebody? I don't want to, like, ask that question and then, like, be awkwardly embarrassed when one guy's like, yeah, I was... But she said, she said no, so we asked it. The reason this command is in the Bible is it teaches us, or reflects rather, a principle of human life and the value of human life. So because all humans are made in the image of God, no human being has the right to take a life of another. 
Now, I should note, it's important to note here, you know, the King James that at least I grew up with, and if you learn the Ten Commandments with all the old-timey words, you might have learned it this way as well. It says, thou shalt not kill, right? But the version we read earlier says, thou shalt not murder. Well, the word actually is murder. There's a word for kill. There's a word for generic taking of life. The, the word here is not that word. The word is murder. Which means, and the, the implication is, and I, we don't, we're not going to dive into all of this, that there is a, a type of killing that may or may not be acceptable. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But murder, when I decide that I want to take the life of another person, it's murder. And it's wrong. Genesis 9, 6 says this. So after, you know, Noah and the whole ark thing, after they're coming out into the new creation, God says this to Noah. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And I realized the whole discussion about capital punishment, it kind of came up in the news this past week. I don't want to dive into the implications of that in modern political discourse at all. But we have here the principle that it's not up to humanity to decide when a life gets taken. God has that right. God has the right to judge. And there may be situations and scenarios where God delegates that authority to humans, but I don't get by myself to determine whether or not I'm going to take someone's life. And the reason given for that is because God made man in his own image. What is the image of God? Right? That's one of those Christian-y words that we hear that we don't necessarily know what it means. There, there's a few different things. There's a few different aspects of it. But if we're going to boil it down into a one-word answer, the image of God is the representative of God on the earth. And if you're going to look at other cultures, other law codes that we have from around Israel, right, if you look at the ancient Assyrians and the ancient Egyptians, they had an image of God too. They had a representative of God on earth. Do you know who or what it was? Shout out, shout out guesses. Let's be interactive this morning. The sun? No. It was a good guess, but unfortunately no. Who was the image of God? It was the king. The king. Which kind of makes sense, right? If you're, if you're an ancient ruler, those were all good guesses, by the way. If you're an ancient ruler who's kind of having this law code written up, you want the people to think that you are the representative of God, right? So, of course, you say, I am the image of God. I am the representative of God on earth. So, if you're an ancient king who's trying to consolidate power, you get to say to people, well, if you don't listen to me, it's not just me that you're not listening to, it's God. You kind of get to wield that, wield that club over people's heads a little bit. But that's why it's so incredible in the book of Genesis chapter 1, where you have Adam and Eve, man and woman, husband and wife, and together they are the image of God. The image of God in the Bible is not a king to wield authority over all of creation on behalf of God and to kind of just have that divine right power. The image of God in the Bible is us. It is our responsibility as humanity to govern the world on God's behalf. That was Adam and Eve's mandate, right? Rule over creation. But the image of God is something that is inherent to each one of us. 
And the Bible really is a book that has radical equality. It's not just the king. It's not just the upper classes. It's not just men. It's men and women. It's all of us together are the image of God. And so because of that image in our lives, because of who we are in relationship to God, our lives have inherent value. So we've already, we've already determined that none of us in here, at least maybe, maybe you're a secret murderer and don't want to raise your hand, which if I, would, I would not want to raise my hand if I were a secret murderer. So I imagine that most of us are not, you know, we don't wake up in the morning like Crumbopulous Michael and say, oh boy, here I go killing again, right? I'm going to love me some murder today, right? That's not any of us in this room. The odds are, actually, that none of us are actually going to meet a murderer. I looked up the statistics on this. I have no idea how accurate there are, but about 1 in 20,000 people is a murderer. So you can live your entire life without ever meeting someone who's a murderer. So what practical impact does this command have on our lives? So maybe you haven't murdered someone, but have you ever wished that someone was dead? If a genie, you know, you find a magic lamp, say, on your way home from church this morning. I don't know. Magic lamps don't exist. But say you do, and a genie pops out after you rub it, and the genie says, you get three wishes. Would it even pop into your mind to have someone in your life drop dead of a heart attack, of a stroke? No one would know. Would that ever go through your mind? A relative, a neighbor, a political opponent? Even though I imagine that most of us never have killed anyone or never will, I think we all kind of know in our hearts inherently that this command goes further than just the command not to kill someone, right? Like if you beat someone up and you pull back a couple punches and, you know, they're just, you know, severely wounded instead of dead, none of us really think that you've actually kept this command, right? We all just know that. Jesus, because he's, you know, an excellent teacher and also the Son of God, puts it this way, and I think it's really beautiful and worth going through. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said to those of old. So you heard that it was, you read in the Old Testament this, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So because of the image of God in all of us, none of us by ourselves has the right to decide to take someone else's life. But also because of the image of God in all of us, every human being is worthy of dignity and respect. It goes beyond just not murdering. We are to respect and love each other. 
we went through this, um, for those of you who, I, I know a couple of you pop by when we have on Monday nights our live stream when we go through weird laws in Deuteronomy. If you're not aware of that, that's a thing that happens. You can go to Facebook and like all of the weird, awkward laws in the book of Deuteronomy that are problematic or confusing, we, we kind of talk through them on Monday nights on Facebook, but we don't want to spend a lot of time on that here. But if you, if you watched this past week, there, there was a phrase in there that stuck out to me and I thought that I should use it this morning. Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 through 3, talks about beating someone publicly, beating a criminal publicly. And one of the reasons we went through that on Monday night is because it was, that's one of those things that seems awkward and barbaric to us. And if you want the full discussion, go back and watch it. We're not going to go through that here today. But this is what Deuteronomy 25, 3 says. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, here's the line, your brother be degraded in your sight. There is the implication there that even though someone is a criminal who justly earns some form of physical public punishment, there's the command there that they may be a criminal, but they don't stop being your brother. They may be a criminal, but they don't stop being an Israelite. They may be a criminal, but they are still made in the image of God. And because they are still made in the image of God, it's not our job to humiliate them. It's not our job to try to ruin their life. We want a just punishment, yes. But we're not out for some sadistic public torture thing. That's not the point. Because they may be a criminal, but that doesn't mean that they lose the image of God. There is still inherent value in their lives. Sometimes our tendency is if someone has committed a crime, we want to relegate them to their own special category, right? There's normal people and there's criminals. But the book of Deuteronomy, throughout the entire book, it shows consistent love and concern for people who sometimes find themselves in the outer categories. Widows. Orphans. Slaves. Foreigners. All of these people who find themselves on the outside so often in our cultures and other cultures, Deuteronomy emphasizes excuse me, that they are all made in the image of God. Their worth does not come from their citizenship. Their worth does not come from their gender. Their worth doesn't come from their level of education or their, how much money they have in the bank or what they've contributed to society. None of that. Their worth comes from the fact that they are people. And because they are people, you are to treat them kindly. So in ancient Israel, if you had a slave that you were releasing, you weren't just supposed to release them. You were supposed to say, hey, here's a bunch of my sheep. Here's a bunch of my gold. Why don't you take it so you don't find yourself back in a similar position in a few years? You can actually get on your feet. If you were a farmer, you couldn't harvest all of your fields. You had to leave some of it. For the people who wandered through, who didn't have land, the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, you had to leave food for them because everyone is made in the image of God. If you're a homeowner, you had to have a fence on your roof. They had flat roofs. So like if you wandered up to it, you could fall off. And you had to to have a fence around it. It was an ancient building code. Because human life is sacred. There's an ancient Jewish prayer. And frankly, I'm not sure how widespread it was. Uh, I don't want to attribute it and say it was really widespread when it wasn't. But there was an ancient Jewish prayer. Where a Jewish man wakes up in the morning 
and says, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile or a slave or a woman. And in that prayer, there's an acknowledgement, a pride in your, in the identity. Now, I'm better than someone because I am part of God's people. I'm better than someone because I am a free person. I'm better than someone because I'm Jewish. The fact is that everyone has dignity because of who they are as human beings. The logical implication of this is not just that murder is wrong. Right? Everyone agrees with that. That's the one thing that if you're going to poll everyone about, or you can ask people about uh, sexual issues, you know, what's right, what's wrong, you're going to get a million different responses, and that's just the culture that we live in. But if you, if you go out on the, in, you know, on the street and say, hey, is murder wrong? Everyone's going to be like, yeah, of course murder's wrong. Why is that an issue? So we all, we all agree on that one. We know that being made in the image of God means we have to respect other people and care for other people. But it also means, because of the image of God, we are to seek the benefit of all of our fellow humans. We are to seek the benefit of all of our fellow humans. One of the verses we read earlier in James 1.27 is a verse that I think it's worth coming back to. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Translated, if we can move a couple of these words around, put a different emphasis on it, emphasis on it, excuse me. If your religion isn't the kind of religion that causes you to care for the people on the outside, the poor, the downtrodden, the outsiders, the foreigners, then your religion isn't a pure religion. It's some kind of perversion of it. It's not actually true religion. The greatest example of this that we have in the world is the person of Jesus. I'm currently reading through the book of Luke. Um, I'm thinking about maybe going through Luke for another sermon series starting this winter in Advent. That's not finalized, but I'm, I'm thinking about it, so I'm reading it. One of, one of the unique things about the book of Luke, right, there are four Gospels, four stories of, of the life of Jesus, and all of them are kind of written from slightly different perspectives. They all emphasize different things over and against another. One of the things that Luke emphasizes is Jesus reaching out to the people on the outside? Jesus reaching out to women. Jesus reaching out to beggars. Jesus reaching out to foreigners, to non-Jews. He reaches out for them, and he cares for them, and he brings them in. And that's one of the great themes of the book of Luke. The story of Zacchaeus. Right? If you grew up in Sunday school, you might have learned that Zacchaeus was a wee little man, as the song goes. Wendy's laughing because she knows it well. That's, that's how I learned, right? Zacchaeus, and that's what we remember. Zacchaeus was short. And, you know, as, as someone who's not the tallest person in the world, you know, I kind of feel Zacchaeus a little bit. But that's not really the point of the story. Zacchaeus worked 
for the Roman government. He was a Jewish person who was a traitor to his own people. Not only was he a traitor to his own people, but he was a thief on top of it. Right? He took money for this foreign oppressive government, and while he was there, he kind of pocketed some for his, for his own benefit. Zacchaeus was a bad dude. And Jesus comes up to him, right? He's hiding in the tree because he's short. Remember this part? Jesus comes up to him and he says, Zacchaeus, how dare you? No. Is that what he says? No, he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to go eat at your house tonight. Zacchaeus, this person who, by all accounts, is a traitor, by all accounts, sold out his people, by all accounts, is a really bad dude, Jesus goes up to him, not to beat him over the head, but just to say, hey, I'm going to eat at your house tonight. No agenda. No kind of um, quid pro quo tied up in that. None. No, not like, you know, I'll go over to your house as long as you do this thing. He just says, no, I'm going to go eat at your house tonight. Because that's who Jesus is. Jesus tells the story about the Good Samaritan. Right? And the Good Samaritan is another one of those stories that right, we hear the word Good Samaritan, and we have, for example, we have Good Samaritan laws in, in the United States that if you're, you, know, you see someone by the side of the road and you stop to try to help them, you know, an accident's happened, then you can't get in legal trouble. Right? That's what the word Good Samaritan means for us. But if you said Good Samaritan back in that day, people would have stopped and been like, Good Samaritan? The Samaritans were the enemies of the Jewish people. And in Luke, they, uh, a man, a lawyer, walks up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I know we're supposed to love our neighbors, but who is our neighbor? And Jesus proceeds to tell a story about a Jewish person who was, you know, kind of out and about minding his own business, and he gets mugged. If we can make it sort of uh, a little modern, just because... You know, help us think through the story a little bit more. You know, say you're on the side of the road and your car is broken down and you're on the side of I-75 and you're waving at people and no one's stopping by. And the cars that are going home are Presbyterian pastors, right? I would say, oh man, that sucks to be. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but you know, like pastors are going by. You know, local upstanding leaders are going by. No, one, no one's stopping to help you. Your cell phone's dead. You know, you you need help, and you can't get help. And all of a sudden, one person pulls over. Woman gets out, full hijab, right? Muslim as Muslim gets. And she's the one who comes over and helps you. Says, hey, here, here's, my, here's my phone. You can call somebody. The person who we sort of naturally feel an enmity with, an animosity with. The person in the other social group. The person who is... On the outside, they are your neighbor. When we think about our neighbors, sometimes it's really easy to think about people who are like us. Same age, roughly the same uh, you know, socioeconomic status, have the same amount of money in the bank, same education, same skin color, same voting pattern, same all of that. But when Jesus talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, he thinks of someone who's completely different than you. Someone who you don't hang out with on a regular basis. Someone who you might think is your enemy. They are your neighbor. Because the thing that makes us special as human beings is not any of the incidental stuff that we have going on in our lives. It's not any of that. 
the thing that makes us special as human beings is the fact that we have the image of God, that we are made and created to be God's representatives on this earth. And it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank or your education or any of these other things. You are special simply because you are human. And it may feel like maybe you haven't accomplished as much as you wanted to. It may feel like your worth or your value comes in degrees or being married or, you know, having kids or any of these other things. But none of that's true. Your worth and your value is because you are a human being who is made in God's image. And that goes for your worst enemy, too. So the command to not murder, even though none of us have murdered, or at least none of us have confessed to murder in this congregation. Again, maybe if you're a murderer, raising your hand is not the best way to you know, say that to someone. But maybe you haven't killed someone. But have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Have you loved the outsider? The person who we often relegate to those, you know, the, the other category. People who are poorer than us. People who we don't want to have anything to do with. You know, they're over there. They're doing their own thing. How do you love them? How do you love your enemy? Throughout the book of Ephesians, when we went through uh, that, that book, that sermon series a few months back, We talked a lot about the new creation and how the new creation in and through the church is breaking into this world. And so we're sort of a little pocket, a little foretaste of what's coming instead of what is. So the idea is that because, or if, maybe that's a better, if you are one of Christ's people, if you are in Christ, and the ethics that characterize your life, the things that you do, the things that you love, should not be the things that necessarily characterize the life of everybody out there. They should be new creation kingdom ethics. So that even though we live in the world, even though we participate in the world, even though we may agree with some people or some perspectives that are given in the world at large, we should never quite feel at home here. Our ethics should be new kingdom ethics, and we should seek how to try to live out those new creation, new kingdom ethics in the world around us. And it should be a warning sign to you if there are any people who aren't people of faith, there are people on the outside of that whole thing, political commentators, cultural commentators, politicians, whoever, whatever have you, if they say all the things that you believe, then maybe there's a problem. Because we're supposed to be characterized not by any political party, not by any human perspective on anything, but we are supposed to be characterized by new creation, new kingdom ethics. That's the worldview that's supposed to come at us first. So if you look at another group of people and your first thought and your first reaction is, 
oh, the government should have this policy about that group of people or that policy about that group of people, then maybe, maybe you're not as new creation-minded as you should be. Our first reaction when dealing with our neighbors, the first question that should come into our minds is how do I love this person as myself? How do I care for this person? This person who has been made in the image of God. This person who Jesus loved so dearly that he sent his son to die on the cross for him or for her. How do I love them and display the kind of love that Jesus showed to other people, like Zacchaeus, the wee little man who's in the tree. said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to go to your house today to eat. How do we truly love our neighbors as ourselves? Maybe we've never killed anyone, but have we really kept this commandment? I think that if we are honest with ourselves, if we truly look into our heart, and I mean every one of us here, me included, if we look into our heart, we can see all of the ways in which we have failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has loved his neighbors as he should. He lived a perfect life. He died a death on the cross that he did not deserve, but that we deserved. He rose again from the dead so that we can have eternal life. And he's currently bringing out a new kingdom, a new creation, new way of life that we, if we have faith and believe and follow him, we get to participate in. And in Christ, we can truly learn what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. Will you pray with me?